Hello, and welcome to the Flip and Shift podcast. My name is Julie Walls. This podcast was based on the Flip and Shift's tagline, flipping your thinking to then shifting your behavior. The Flip and Shift podcast focuses on temperament to then how we evolve in our thinking to which influences our behaviors. We create belief systems throughout life, which affects the outcomes in our lives. Did you know that you can reprogram these belief systems? To produce the outcomes you so desire. No matter what you're dealing with, there will always be a solution for you. So, this podcast should give you some hope. Yay! With each episode, we'll be chatting with leading experts in the field that have overcome struggles of their own. They found their way to overcome areas in their lives that needed focus and are now actually helping others to find their way. We all have a story to share. Let's learn from our past to change our future, and most importantly, inspire and help others along the way. If you are wanting to feel empowered, inspired, and are ready to make those changes in your life, you are subscribed to the right podcast. And hey, thank you so much for your support. Now, grab your favorite drink or snack, turn up the volume, kick back, and enjoy this chat. All right, you guys. Hello, hello. My name is Julie Walls. I'm from the Flip and Shift podcast. I'm here to inspire and share the stories of experts who have gone through a journey, found their way, and and are now inspiring and helping others. Today, we have an amazing guest with us, which I'm so excited about. Her name is Dr. Sarah Allen, and I'm so excited to share her story and all of her information, as well as what, what she's doing these days. Um, she, she specializes in pediatric neuropsychology. Dr. Sarah helps busy parents overcome their fear and anxiety of failing their kids. You guys, we need a manual and she's about as close as we possibly can get to a manual. Um, so she's going to help us refocusing their view of parenting with brain science with applied brain science. So without further ado, welcome, welcome, Dr. Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. It's so nice to be here. Oh, absolutely. So now, okay, tell us a little bit about you. Where are you located? Yeah, so I'm located actually in South Jersey. I always say you have to separate yourself from North Jersey for some reason when you live here. So we're South Jersey right outside of Philadelphia. Okay. So I'm up in the Northeast. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. So just a little bit, I know we talked, you know, and I, and I want to touch base on this because I think it's really important. So as my followers listen to you, I kind of like to give a little bit of backstory on you. And I know you have a tremendous personal struggle story, Mm -hmm. um, especially over the last 10 years. And so if you don't mind, would you mind sharing a little bit about what we talked about (laughs) before our interview? Because I think it's so profoundly important for people to hear your story. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's funny you call it uh, uh, this personal story. I didn't even realize that they were struggles until I put everything down on paper. I kind of just barreled through and kept moving. And so what you're referring to is, is just within the last 10 years, you know, I um, tried to have children and I lost three kids. All three of them only lived about an hour. I was pregnant with my first um, and then pregnant with twins after that. I lost the twins a few days apart. And then shortly, I was lucky enough to have two beautiful children who are nine and 11 now. Yeah. Um, What's their names? Uh, Juliana and Carter. Oh, I Juliana. love it. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, more in 2018, my sister passed away from cancer. So she was diagnosed at 28 and died at 29. And even within that time, my mom had cancer twice, you know, earlier before I had kids, she had a colorectal cancer. And then she had just actually gotten through the breast cancer treatment within about six months before my sister was diagnosed. And that kind of came out of nowhere because we had no genetic markers or anything like that. Wow. It's just kind of happens. Yeah, it was a little crazy. You know, my my dad probably said it best. He, he said, we went from hoping that our daughter didn't have to have a mastectomy and, and chemo to hoping our daughter only had to have a mastectomy and chemo. And it happened very quickly. Yeah. So yeah, so that was, that was a tough, tough time. And then after she passed, you know, my marriage, which had kind of been struggling for, you know, a few years before that, but we didn't really have any emotional space for it. I finally disintegrated. Um, and so I got divorced and then moved to a new town and my kids started school in September and the world shut down in March. And here we are. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, so let's, let's backtrack a bit. Okay. So I just want to make sure people understand. I mean, you've dealt with some significant loss, grief and loss, right? In that time frame. So mm-hmm. you had back to back, you had three children pass away, correct? Correct. Mm-hmm. And then Wait, did, were your your other two, were they already born? No, my kids were born after. So I got pregnant. Uh, I was in my doctoral program. I was okay. chugging, you know, chugging along probably 23, 24. And, you know, I remember one of the first kids, I was working with an ADHD uh, group of kids and okay. he had put his hand on my belly and he was asking me if there was a baby in there. And then between that and the next time I saw him, you know, I had lost a, a child. So it was just, it was just really fast. You know, it was the first time in my life that I'd been going in one direction and then my life just made this big left turn you know, and it just was unexpected. And then I got pregnant as soon as they told me I could again. And it happened to be with twins, which already has a preterm labor risk. And I deliver, I actually went on my internship interviews. You have to travel around, do internship interviews and something felt funny. And I ended up going to the interview in the morning and on bed rest by that evening. And I was there for three weeks. I didn't get out to go to the bathroom. And just kind of laying there. And then one night I remember that I felt the same kind of thing. And my nurse came in and I told her, I'm like, okay, none of us want this, but this is going to happen. I know what this feels like. And I know how quickly it happened the last time. Yeah. And the, the, the resident came in and said, oh, everything's fine, honey. You're going to be good. Don't worry about it. And I remember listening to the nurse and the doctor scream at each other in the hallway And luckily the nurse won because as soon as I got down there, I barely made it and I was already in a delivery and I lost a lot of blood and I had ended up with a transfusion. I remember kind of going out and people calling my name and me getting really angry at them. Like, why are you calling? Will you stop talking? (laughs) And then for me, all of a sudden I came to, but in the middle of all of that, there was a lot of, there was, so I remember so many people being in the room and, you know, my second son was born. Alex. And then they told me if I could make it four days without an infection, that I might have be able to save my second twin. And that was kind of my focus, which is why I wanted to get down to the other side of the hospital. I knew I had to be there. And so that was my focus point. Mm-hmm. And then day four, I woke up with chills and they were putting blankets on me. I'm like, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And it wasn't. Yeah. And so we made it to the fourth day, but that fourth day I had to deliver Owen, which was my third son, and he passed away right about an hour after he was born. Oh, wow. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Dr. Allen. I mean, 
Dr. Sarah, I, that's a lot to deal with, but, and, but it's so relatable because I mean, I think I talked to you a little bit about this. I did do a, um, a, I had a conversation with walking for baby feet and it's a very common thing that happens and women just silently grieve and they, they, they're trying to figure out all the emotions and how to compartmentalize it. And the thing is, is that you lost three, that is, that is highly traumatic but I want to ask how long after that did you get pregnant with your, your next, your fourth child? Yeah. So I got pregnant uh, right when they told me I could again. So probably nine months, they usually say after and then I, you know, the getting pregnant luckily for me has, wasn't my, my particular issue. I had every other one basically. <laughs> so hey, um, I was able to get pregnant and I got an, I had another doctor, a second opinion who, by the way, for the twins had come to the hospital 7.30 in the morning. Everybody's still sleeping lights out. And this man came in and sat with me and showed me a PowerPoint of, you know, which was totally speaking my language as a, as a professor. Yeah. Yeah. Showed me the three different paths and different things that they could do and what the risks I had at that particular time. And um, that's where he kind of got me focused on, you know, what the likelihood was of saving a twin when you are going to, if you lose one and mm-hmm. what week, you know, we had to make it to it was around 23, 24 weeks each time for me. And I would go into labor, which some people, you know, if you have a, an incompetent cervix or something, sometimes the baby almost kind of just falls out. But for me, I would go into labor, which was confusing everybody. And so we ended up kind of doing everything in the kitchen sink. You know, I did shots every day for clotting factors, which, you know, I maybe had, maybe did. Nobody could really tell. I did a stitch for an incompetent cervix and I did a progesterone shot every day to kind of uh, make sure I wouldn't go into labor every week, excuse me, so I wouldn't go into labor. And, you know, he just said there are three different things that usually happen and we just did them all and they happen to work for Juliana. And luckily, you know, for me, just as an emotional thing, I think it was helpful that Juliana was a girl because I had lost three boys and it almost felt like a little bit of a, sh- a shift up. And then Carter came, I, I got pregnant with Carter again, kind of right after. So they're 18 months apart. Wow. Um, and, and the doctor said, well, we might be able to take one of these things out. And I said, no, it's okay. I'm not going to do anything different. And we're going to keep going. And I think that was what, how I did it. I just didn't stop, you yeah. know, thinking about pausing and going back to that process, I think would be even more difficult. Yeah. And I, and I want to further ask you, so, I mean, you kind of moved pretty quickly. You went from grief, loss to celebration, right? Of life. But I mean, I want to understand kind of mentally, first and foremost, folks don't have the applied brain science like you do and the understanding of psychology and how the emotional impact and all of that, how to compartmentalize but I, I want to know personally, how did you heal from the grief and loss? And then, you know, how did you kind of move through that? So, you know, I don't think I did until okay. recently, until okay. the pandemic hit, which kind of will lead us to to the book and such. But I, I think what I did was what you said, which is barrel through, head down, just kept going and running. And, you know, I always say, even with the parents that I work with, that sometimes that's not a bad strategy and sometimes that is. Yeah. Um, you know, barreling through is, you know, okay when when it's a little too raw 
and it's not the right time to process it, but you need to process it at some point. You need to do that at some point. You, you mentioned like to this joy. I don't think I felt that kind of joy. I was happy my daughter was born. That was also a little traumatic for me because I had a C-section and the nurse at the time wouldn't let me see my child. They had they'd taken her down to the NICU for, she failed the feeding test or something, something where she passed it the next time, but she was away from me for a few hours. And I said to the nurse, I've lost three children. I've left this hospital without them. You need to let me see my child. And she just, it was just a nurse who didn't want to. Um, eventually somebody, I spent the, after my C-section, I spent the, the first few hours trying to sit up because they told me I had to be able to get into a wheelchair to go down there. And then finally somebody, um, it was actually a funny moment with my sister who died because she was in the office and she pushed the cart of the nurse. She's like, you need to leave the room. And she pushed the cart. And we used to tease her because the nurse was like, don't touch my cart. So anytime my sister would get a little ornery, we'd be like, don't touch my cart. <laughs> um, but she was, you know, she would got them out and we finally, they wheeled me down and I was able to see her. So that I think was what, what kind of paused some of that, yeah. you know, being able to really share in the joy. But when my son was born, my son was probably that, that quote, perfect delivery. You know, I had a VBAC. So I was a scheduled time. I went and he lasted forever to the point where I just wanted him out. You know, he was nine pounds, three ounces, this big baby. And, you know, we went in, they induced me and I delivered a child that cried and that could go on my belly and could be, you know, could get all dirty and, and happy and all of that. And so that felt full circle to me, you know, was kind of like, I've, I've had these other deliveries, some with epidural, some without, and to be able to actually have the baby live and be able to stay and that whole process was was good. But then afterwards, you know, it does hit you in random times. You know, my he had to come back for belly rubin, you know, just to go under lights. And that was really hard for me to take a child back to a hospital, you know, like that. And it'll hit me every once in a while, especially with him. My daughter, I'm kind of more like, you're a girl, pick yourself up. Let's go. Come on. That's what we do. You know, yeah. with my son, I'm more like, I have to, what I call swallow it. Like I always say, like I take the emotion and I just kind of like swallow it when he wants to go do something that I know he can do, but I know that it's my issue that I, I, I want to just like curl him up and hold him and not let him go. So you have to watch those reactions. And I think all parents, whether you've lost a child or not, you really have to watch your own reactions and try to separate them from what your kids need. Maybe when you have something traumatic, it's just, you know, gives you a little harder, but at the same time, you know, you have to work on it. A hundred percent. Yeah. Cause I know, you know, I have a lot of friends, I family members that have lost kids and then they end up, it's a lifelong thing. You lose yeah. a child, it's never going to go away, right? That that loss, it gets better with time, but it's compartmentalization of your emotions. And actually, I feel like for you, you know, getting help, right? That's really important is getting support, especially when you have those bad days. And, and you know, I know you're going to talk a bit about this, but just allowing yourself to feel also, you know, these children, you know, when you have children, if, if you lose a child and then you, you have older children or whatever, they don't understand what you're going through. Right. So right. I think it's important. And you know, this to, to really talk about what you're feeling, how you're feeling it. And you're so good at, you've taught your kids, I mean, how to feel and how to compartmentalize. And I think that's so important, especially when you go with, through something so horrific. I mean, you, you lost three kids, you lost your sister. 
I mean, there's a lot of trauma there. And I feel like, you know, people struggle with that and they don't know how, and sometimes they think that their kids know what they're going through. Right. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I'm just really impressed with how you were able to kind of move through all of that, which is, you know, I often say like you either get out of bed or you don't, you know, at some point that's your choice. You either get out of bed or you don't. And I remember, you know, going back to work two weeks after I lost my first child and it's a surreal experience. And then after the twins, I had to stay in a little bit longer because I had, um, like I said, I had the transfusion and I was anemic and I, and I hadn't walked for three weeks. So just the physical aspects were a little much. And when I left the house, I remember kind of this weird experience of seeing my own body, you know, from the outside, because I, I realized I'd been inside. So you kind of have to push through those. We know from brain science that that exposure is important. And so I, I knew that, but also when you're going through it, you know, it's, it's different for you. You, everybody needs a coach, I always say. So you might know some of these things, but you need that little push. And, you know, you think that, that feeling of thinking your life is going in one direction and then it suddenly takes a left turn. I mean, I think more people can relate to that now after the pandemic than they could before. But I remember sitting on the floor of my bedroom against the wall, sitting like against the wall, hiding as they delivered this baby furniture that we had ordered uh, with my first son, Jake. And that was just a few weeks after the loss. And I just remember, you know, they had this prize for delivery day, you know, that if you were to deliver on this date, and I remember walking in feeling so happy. And I just remember thinking about all those things you know, that it's supposed to be this big, happy thing, but it's a little, every each piece can be a little heartbreaking for you. And you have to remember that you can feel multiple things at one time. You can feel really happy uh, for someone else and feel really devastated for yourself at the same time. And actually my best friend came to visit me in the hospital. She was pregnant and she delivered her son in between my twins. So we had this call where we had to have this you know, where I was so happy for her, but so sad for myself. And she felt the same way. And I was devastated because when she came home and had the big stork on her lawn, she broke down crying for me. You can make me cry. (laughs) And I was sad that she had to feel that way, you know, but it also brings you so close to these people, you know, like to have that kind of experience. And they're now, you know, my son just went to play with her son. I mean, they're just, they're best friends, but you know, I wouldn't even register for my daughter. You know, at that point I was like, Nope, sorry. It's happened three times. I am not doing anything. And I could occasionally sit in that baby rocker, you know, and just kind of dream about it. And my friend went and got me all the things I needed. You need that. Yeah, you 100% need that. And I was in the hospital and I came home and everything, anything I needed was set up because we moved, we were moving. And I was like, I am bringing live children home to this house. And everything was packed, but we stayed there for a full week. And they they got me anything I needed and put it put it in there. And we were able to be there for one week before we moved. And, you know, it's really not easy. But, you know, just like this, it hits you at different times. You think you might be fine, you're not. And you just kind of have to have to go with it. And it's just one day at a time. You know, at first you realize that you've got a day without crying the whole day, or maybe, you know, for me, you didn't cry the whole way home, you know, and then it's a few days and then it's a week and then it's a month. And, you know, eventually it, it, it moves more to the back of your mind instead of the front and, you know, things distract you and then it'll just hit you again. And sometimes in the quiet times, or maybe when it rains or, or late at night or something, but eventually it becomes a smaller part of you, you know, not that bigger part of you. And instead of it being all of you, it's some of you. 
you know, the kids and I light a candle on the date, you know, of each of the deaths of his brothers. And my, my son calls him his brothers. That's what he, he'll just talk about them. Love that. I and love he'll it. usually Boy. say something, <laughs> he'll <laughs> smile and, and that's it. You know, maybe I cry a little bit. And then especially now, you know, you mentioned not having kids when I had mine, which I think was a blessing. I personally see that as a blessing because I don't think one for me, I realized exactly I, I knew what I lost, but I didn't realize the extent of it until I had children and see them grow every day to see what you actually are losing, you know, and I didn't necessarily help have to help them go through that at that same time, you know, and the best tip I can give people going through something like this is to be accepting, you know, be accepting of your own emotions, be accepting of your kids' emotions, be accepting of strangers' emotions. You know, I found out that other people really need to find a reason why these things happen, yeah. Um, they needed to justify the bad things and that's just a coping mechanism for everything. Or maybe they needed to find, or, you know, why it wouldn't happen to them. It's a natural coping process that people go through. I heard a lot of God got an angel or it wasn't meant to be, or even worse, like, did you have a lot of stress or were you working out? You know what, you know, and you know, that's about other people. That's not about you. And so if you can just kind of separate those things that really helps a lot when you realize that that's really hard to do right after, you know, so protecting yourself and grabbing your people around you, I think is really important because you need to kind of be able to have it handled a little bit yourself before you can understand and be accepting of other people. Remember the first time we got tons of flowers and all these things. The second time people like didn't really know what to do. You know, like, do you send something? They kind of were a little nervous. It's almost like a voodoo. They don't want to get, get, don't want to catch it on some level. And I don't think that that's a, um, you know, that's a nasty thing from people. I just think it's a protective thing. So, you know, but I, I, and I, and again, luckily I didn't have kids, but I can tell you from losing my sister, that is very difficult to manage your own emotions when you're helping your kids. And I think there are some good tips, you know, that I learned during that time, you know, I think the first one is, is to tell kids what's happening, you know, but do it at their level. You want to explain it, but at the most basic level and then follow their lead. You know, oftentimes we think kids are going to make big jumps that they don't make. You know, with my sister, I thought that they would think they would be afraid that they'd get cancer, that I would get cancer, that their parents would die. Nobody yeah. made that leap. They didn't. You know, we just we with my sister, we separated being sick from having cancer and then having terminal cancer in our case because my mom had had cancer, but was fine. My sister had terminal cancer and people get That's sick. a lot to really digest as a child. Yeah, that's amazing that you pointed that out. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no. And then we started, you know, there and then listened for any bigger worries the kids have. Sometimes they have things you didn't think of. So my biggest tip for parents would be say the very basic and then follow, follow their questions. Sometimes they're like, yep, okay, what are we having for dinner? And then that's fine. But just kind of leave it and, and make sure they understand it and have open for questions. And then really show how you work through your own emotions. Don't be scared of that. You know, even after years of, you know, academic and professional and personal experience of this time dealing with emotions, at first I would try to conceal my feelings and that's exhausting and it doesn't help your kids. You know, it, it's okay to show your kids that you can laugh and then cry and then be angry. And sometimes all at the same time, yeah. uh, if you hide your emotions, they never learn how to heal. They never learn how to cope. They don't learn how to, how to manage it, how to understand big feelings and that feelings are mixed. You know, they, they need to learn that. And remember too, that your kids, you might speak with your words, but they speak with their behavior. So they might scream or kick or get really quiet or whine and try not to take that personally, try to support them, 
tried to think, and we'll get to this, but what do their little brains need? Well, what are they trying to tell me? Listen to that message and not the delivery. And if it's grief, you know, I think it's helpful to think of a focus point. So for my sister, we focused on raising money, but it could be anything, you know, could focus on making, uh, you know, I know people make beautiful collages. It can focus on looking at pictures. It can focus on writing stories. My niece's aunt made her this beautiful book about my sister that she reads now every time before she goes to bed. And it was just a little kid story she made her about, about her aunt now. Did, did it, was there like something that they use a tool or she just made it? Just like Snapfish or, or Shutterfly, you know, she just made, put pictures together and then just kind of talked about them and labeled them. It was so beautiful. And it is something that my niece treasures so much. It was so wonderful. And I think that talking about it is good. You know, if you are, and you have to go by what your kids, you know, where you are and where your kids are, you know, your kids might want to talk about the loss of their brother or sister. When I left the hospital, they gave me bear, a stuffed bear they give you. And the first time I almost threw it at their head because I was like, you gotta be kidding me. You're going to give me a stuffed bear when I, you know, yeah. instead of a kid, like that's my consolation prize. Yeah. Uh, but I was mad at the universe at that point. You know, when I lost the twins, I was like, do you have another one? <laughs> so now we have three. And my, you know, my kids know that those are important to mommy. Those are not kind of the things I don't want you to play with them, but I do. I'm okay if you have them out. And, you know, so they know and they they feel comforted by them. Can I just inter- interject? Because yeah. there's, there's a comment, a link here that just popped up at me and I wrote it down. So my mom lost two children and and I was, you know, a little older and I remember it very vividly. And I remember my mom brought home a bear from the hospital and it represented my sister, she died pretty tragically. And then my brother died the following year, but she did bring those pieces home. And I remember as a child, how important they were and where she placed them in her room and they weren't to be touched, right? They were a you know representation of my sister and my brother. And so from a little kid's perspective, I just went there in my brain. I'm like, yeah. And I, and I remember the importance of, and I can see the, I remember just standing at the bottom, looking up at it and thinking that's my sister, but it was in a bear form. And that brings up such a good point too, about like kind of helping kids to make it concrete. Because now that you say that, I remember my brother-in-law's father died kind of quickly and, 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 he had this dementing condition where he went within kind of a year. And my son looked at me and said, mom, can we get him a bear? He wanted to get his uncle Sheen a bear, you know, and I, and it took me a while. I'm like, well, bear, why would you? And I was like, oh, because when we brought, you know, he knows he, that these represents the, the brothers he lost and he wanted to give his uncle, you know, some, something that clearly was comforting to him, something that represented. And I was like, we are totally getting him a bear. <laughs> Absolutely. I love your son. And you learn, you realize that you, this is, and this is the important thing. The kids pick up your, your strategies and your modeling and you don't have to be perfect. You shouldn't be perfect as a matter of fact, because then they think that their feelings aren't valid or real. They exist. You don't want to sweep under the rug, but, uh, and you want to try not to lose it to the point where you can't get it back completely. Um, but it happens. You know, I remember a time after my sister died sitting on the floor. I guess I sat on the floor when I uh, grieve. I could, <laughs> That's I okay. You. We all do different things. Uh, so it. I was crying. You know, we had a fight with my my family, you know, because it's very emotional after this and trying to figure out what we we're going to do. I, I forget what it was about. And my son came in. He's like, are you okay, mom? I was like, I'm just sad. You know, I had a fight with Mimi um, and I'm just upset about it. And he goes, okay. He goes, um, well, 
I know what to do. And he goes out and I hear him in the kitchen and he says, Aunt Mamie, because uh, he can't say Aunt Amy. So he says, Aunt Mamie, which is forever her name. Um, and she says, Aunt Mamie, my, my mommy needs some help. I don't think I can help her, but I think you can. And she yeah. says, she's like, oh, thank you so much, Carter. She's like, I'll absolutely help him. You did a really good job getting somebody that could help your mommy. And he left and she came in and we like almost laughed about, you know, about it at the same time. And, and, and then we were okay. And after that, you know, I kind of was able to get back up and I just said to him, Carter, I, I, I can't thank you enough for finding somebody to help your mommy. That was such a good thing for a little boy to do. And you find those moments where you can be teaching those strategies and reinforcing the things that you want to see in your kids, you know, and that would be the other tip would be to reach out for support. You know, I had, in my case, I had good friends to help me. We were supposed to go to the beach that week anyway, and they came anyway, and they just made sure that I didn't need the, to do the cooking or the cleaning or anything or the managing. It was just, we were just there. And it gave me that space, that little bit of emotional energy I needed to kind of get back to raising my kids. And that really helps. And then the last one's just to teach them to remember. I mean, we talked about the books, which I think are really helpful, but, you know, keeping those happy memories alive to try to kind of... Uh, they'll eventually replace the sad ones, but to not keep it quiet, communicate, talk about it. You know, I remember I was asking, I think Carter, how he felt shortly after my sister passed. And he said, I'm a little sad mommy. And I'm a little happy. You know, I'm sad that aunt Nana died, but I'm happy when I remember her. So I'm just trying not to think about the dying part. And I'm going to think about the living part. Love that. I mean, your son, look at the emotional intelligence there. Right. Well, and he's been an interesting, tough, tough, tough time controlling his emotions when he was younger, really hard time. And he's worked really, really hard. And he'll say, you know, mommy, you helped me. And I'll say, no, you did it. You know, but he, he, I mean, to the point where I would sit on this kid for an hour and a half before his body calmed down, that kind of tough time. And he has grown into really learning how to to work with his emotions because he had to, you know. Yeah, that's wonderful. Oh my gosh. You're, I'm just so, I'm, I've got chills. I moved by everything you said. Thank you so much. I mean, that asking you're going to hit somebody's heart today. So thank you so much. Well, it's nice to talk about, you know, I think what happens when you have stuff like this happen is you end up, you don't talk about it as much. One, I I realize I don't want to bother somebody else. I don't want to make them go through a process of that. But by doing that, you kind of protect other people. But by doing that, the people who need to hear it can't hear it right? They don't hear it. And so you realize, you know, I remember people coming out of the woodwork, my very best friends, you know, her husband's mom lost kids. Nobody knew about it until I, you know, it happened to me. And she wrote me this lovely note, you know, to kind of just tell me about it. And I had no idea. And I think you find these people come out of the woodwork when you've had this and we stop talking about it sometimes because we don't want to, but also for me, it has to do a lot with not making other people uncomfortable or making them sad. And and then the people who need to hear it the most tend not to. So thank you for asking about it because I think it would be really helpful. No, no. Thank you for sharing. And I really appreciate, there's so many things, so many takeaways from what you talked about. So thank you so much for sharing your personal story. I really, really appreciate it. And I know as well, especially coming from a neuropsychologist. It's like, wow, yeah, you think you're invisible and that you've got it all figured out and you don't have an emotion or a feeling, but look at, you had to process it too and then figure out how to work through it for your children. So I'm just really thankful for your story. 
Well, and it's a process for me of being a little vulnerable. You know, I think that people used to say those things to me, you have it all together. And people almost couldn't relate to me for that reason. And I'm sitting here like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, have you seen the last? But, you know, you put on a nice shirt and you do your hair. And, you know, I always, that's what, and that was kind of one of my things. I just get up and get dressed every morning, get up and, you know, get ready. And, and so I might look that way, but, you know, not everybody who looks that way feels that way. And, I'm learning to share more so that people, you know, can, can hear it and understand it and maybe relate and maybe allow me in enough to be able to help them in whatever that they, yes. they can do too. And I think yes. that's important for yes. all of us to be this community. Yes. I love that. Thank you so much for that's important. You guys, if you're tuning in and you need to talk to Sarah, she is available. So, and I will give you guys all of her information. You can connect with her. It's the brainbehaviorbridge.com, right? Correct. Correct. Yes. Yes. Well, and I, I want to transition over to, to your work. Mm-hmm. All right. And I think, and I know we talked a little bit about this. Did you, and I want to ask, this is kind of a side note. Did you find healing in, in starting to dive into the Raising the Brains book, all the programs that you put out there, your coaching work, what you do for school. You guys, she's amazing. (laughs) Let me just throw that out there, okay? I want to talk a little bit. I want to ask you, can you give some insight into what you do, your background, brain science background, which is awesome? Yeah, definitely. You know, I studied brains for over like, I don't know, 15 years you know, and I had this educational and professional career doing this. And then I think a lot of what happened to me personally kind of connected together. You know, I, I realized that a lot of what I was recommending to my patients and then how I raised my kids was based on the development of the brain, you know, it was just the way that I thought. I remember my mom would tell me, you think that way, but people don't actually think that way. You know, you have to tell people that. And I was like, oh, like kids talk with their behavior, I would say to her. And she goes, I didn't know that. She's like, I wish I had known that when you were were growing up. And, you know, it was just kind of the way that I thought. And so I think at, even within the pandemic, as it, the world shut down, you know, we realized how much teaching actually happens with our kids and has to happen with our kids. And when we're all stuck in the house, I think we notice that we have to relate. We want to relate to our kids and our kids are kind of interesting. They are different kids. You know, when you're running a mile a minute and you don't have to, um, parents would tell me, and I even, I realized this myself that they related to their kids differently. They, they realized what was going on in their kids' heads and how power, how like a powerful, a good, solid, meaningful relationship with their kids was really important to raising good humans, right? To raising good humans' brains. And that's really how this brain book came about. You know, I, I had been, been working with, with schools and teachers and such. And a lot of that work shut down during the pandemic. And so I really went through this process of kind of processing things myself. All this stuff we just talked about, you know, I had barreled through, I hadn't really processed. So I slowed down and thought a lot about it. And I have this habit of kind of like intellectualizing, watching myself go through a process as I'm going through it and really realized, you know, how how I wanted to give back. Uh, and this was my way of being able to give back, you know. I want to let everybody know you you did have a blog, right? You were, I read through it. I mean, amazing stuff. Oh, well, thank you. You know, I was teaching yeah. in a doctoral program for a while and writing, you know, on a uh, philly.com healthy kids blog. Um, and, and I like, and I realized that too, you know, going from academic to more of a pop press 
world uh, in academia. It's such a, uh, there's a depth to the writing and, 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 and um, it can get really complicated. And I would read through these articles and think, okay, so what's my takeaway? How can I use this? What do I need, What do I want to do? And that would always be the way I'd approach it. And then when I finally was able to transition out of the doctoral program and open my own practice, very practical, you know, I'm about efficiency and effectiveness. That's what Yay. I want. And so, you know, I realized, well, wait a minute, I don't actually want to write an academic book. I want to write something that's going to be useful to people. Uh, one of my favorite behavior books is One, Two, Three Magic by Tom Phelan. And he actually wrote the forward to my book. He's so wonderful. And he's such a great yeah. person. And I'd written a little bit for him at one point. And, you know, to be, to, that's what I wanted to do. You know, something you could grab that you could really use and that would help to shift. So I kind of combined when I taught neuropsychology, there's no real book to teach you how to become a neuropsychologist. So I had to think about how to help people think differently yeah. instead of what's the answer to this question, what's the answer to that question. And so this book is really designed to help shift the way parents think about their kids to start to see them as little brains instead of kids so that we can really start to grow these good humans and really help them have all the skills that they need to be able to handle things because you know, we know we can't save them from all bad things. We learned that in the pandemic. I've known that in my life. If I could save them from my sister dying, I would. If I could have saved them from the pandemic, I would. But that's not the case. You know, life is the series of ups and downs. And you have to be happy in the ups and kind of ride out the downs. And you need skills to do that. And so I think with our kids, um, this the book is designed to really help people find this guide for how do I think about this so that I can handle anything that comes my way. Yes, I love that. Okay. I want to touch point something. Okay. You in the past, you worked with adults, right? So you were teaching adults applied brain science, but through your doctoral and your master's classes, is that correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I taught doctoral and master's level classes. Yeah. Okay. So then, then you decided to transition it to work with children. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I was teaching in the doctoral and the master's classes, mostly teaching other people how to help kids. So I'm a clinical psychologist, but I had this fun opportunity to teach in a school psychology program, which is a slightly different program, but I got to work with the kids, people who were working with the kids. But before that, I had originally actually worked directly with kids. Uh, I ran a school for kids with Asperger's and anxiety and learning disabilities for a few years before I became a professor and I was helping, I really was interested in the intervention in the translation of what I was doing as a neuropsychologist. Cause we put all these reports out, send it out to districts or schools and nobody could translate them. Cause if you said one thing, but you didn't teach them why you were saying it and it didn't work, they would just kind of drop it. So I had this great opportunity um, to do that. And then I wanted to have a bit of a bigger impact. So Instead of helping individual kids, I was now, I was helping classrooms of kids by supervising teachers and working with teachers to get that great intervention going from a clinical perspective. Then I went to now training other school psychologists to work with the teachers to work with the kids. <laughs> so I really wanted to kind of big have a bigger impact. So if I could teach 15 psychologists or school psychologists how to think differently about the work that they do with kids, then I can impact all those kids and the professionals that those kids work with. Let me just throw this out there, okay? I just thought of something. Your brain has to work in all these different, <laughs> all these different types of people. It's just fascinating. I'm like, can I just get into your brain for a second? Oh my God, it's scary in there, I tell you. Actually, my current partner was joking with me the other day and he said that, I said, I really, I feel like I need a hobby because I don't have a hobby. Yeah. 
thinking is your hobby. And I, I just started, I'm like, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what I did. Like other people go out and garden and I it just, there's swir- stuff swirling around me. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I just, I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. I look at the possibilities of what I could do with your brain. I'm thinking like, oh, okay, I would put you in a podcast. I would have you talk all the time. I would, you know what I mean? Like you'd have your own show. Like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> One day perhaps. But. Yeah, because you'd work with all these different people and you can see them and you're so outside of the box. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really fascinating. And I could see you moving an organization, which is awesome. Well, you know, and I think that that was what was fun about running the school for a few years was really being able to direct, you know, and help people in this way by being able to help them with the way that they think and thinking about that. And how cool is that? You know, and then you think about all those kids who grow up and then when they have kids, you know, and the way they can impact the world. And so that's one of my favorite things to do is kind of watch. I still have some students who just, someone just emailed me the other day and said, I just started teaching and, you know, and this is what I'm doing. And I love hearing those updates and such, because that's the whole point of doing this. And I think that's what happened to me during the pandemic is I wanted to do more. I wanted to give back, especially during that time of the pandemic. And, you know, I, my sister is a wonderful nurse practitioner and she could give back in that way. And that wasn't my format. So, you know, and I even use that as a learning experience. My daughter would say, what's wrong? I'm like, I'm sad right now. I'm just trying to figure out, you know, what I can do and how I can give back. I'm, I'm going to be fine. I just don't know yet. And through that, she's now watched this whole progression of me writing the book and speaking on podcasts and coming out and trying to help families and parents. And I'm, I'm proud of that because that's, you know, that's what we do. We use these moments in our own lives to say, Hey, look, watch, watch, watch me go through this. And this is, you know, what you can do. And that impact on her hopefully will be a good one in the end. For sure. <laughs> and I want to, I want to talk a little bit about speaking about helping parents. I know you did an interview with Sandy. Is it Missouri? Yes. She's wonderful. Mm-hmm. She's awesome. I love yeah. listening to her and <laughs> talking about, you know, I think it was, uh, she was referring to you walk out of the hospital, right? And then they teach you a little bit how to feed the baby, how to dress the baby, how to change their diaper, and then, you know, physically take care of our children. But then we are left like, okay, I'm lost. How do I deal with this little mind that's developing, right? So Mm -hmm. how do you help parents navigate through those um, changes with our children? Yeah. So, you know, I feel the same way. I'm like, there's no manual for, for raising your kids. This, this, you know, hopefully this book will give you some guide, but I love to help my families begin to think about raising little brains instead of raising children. And by doing this, what happens is you become like a brain detective, right? And, and that does a few things. You know, the first thing it does is it reduces that emotion that you often have with parenting. We all have it. I have it with my kids. I need, I need my dream team, as I call them, to help me manage my kids because they will, they know, I say we're passionate about raising our kids and they were passionate about pushing our buttons. You get that. And, you know, it reduces that emotion we often have with parenting. And then we understand it, what's happening, it helps too. You know, I like to personify parts of the brain. So I call the amygdala, which is the emotion center of the brain, Amy G, because she's just so emotional. I love that. I know oh. that's like going to be my new thing. I'm going to totally quote you all the time on that. Just so oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when our Amy G goes crazy, you know, then the front of our brain, Franny, you know, who I picture like a secretary in a school from my standpoint, working to calm down Amy G, you know, but then Franny can't also do the other things that Franny's responsible, like calmly, logically think through things and be reasonable. Right. But by thinking about our, our kids as little brains, we can reduce that emotion. 
And then the second thing that we can gain from thinking about our kids as these little brains is that we start to think about what they need to learn. Instead of thinking about managing behaviors, we are brain growers, right? We're going to grow brains. And so we need to start asking ourselves two questions. What does this little brain need to learn? And what can I teach this little brain? And now we're looking at the skills our kids need to build instead of punishing, restricting, managing behavior, right? That's such a down, that's a, it's a holding, holds kids back. And this, when we do this, it's a long-term gain versus the short-term gain. So sometimes we take a little time up front, but you will see it almost immediately pay off. That's awesome. Yes. Thank you. for The personification does one thing. <laughs> I love it too. I, love- I personify everything. I'm always like, oh, don't hurt that cup. Make sure you put it in the dishwasher nicely. So it just kind of worked out. I love it because I've heard you speak on other interviews and I'm just like, that's like brilliant. The personification Aww. is brilliant because it puts things in perspective. Okay. I can see that happening in my brain. So well, I taught physiology of the brain for so long to masters and doc students and people would have such a hard time grasping it. And I'm thinking, you know, if this was a story or a song, we'd all be good with it. So we just made a story. So that, a that's create a brain happening. I the love next that. set is kids books is our personification. Yeah. Our Amy G and our Franny coming out. So it's I in the works. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you don't have a kid's book with that. Do you? Do you Not yet. To- it's in my, it's literally in the works. So that would be my okay. next tackle. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Let me know when that comes out. I'll <laughs> help you with that. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about your experience as a program assessor in schools. Can you speak mm-hmm. about that? We do have folks that tune in that are teachers, counselors. They'd be interested in hearing your experience. Absolutely. So one of my favorite things to do is apply all the stuff we've just talked about to the school setting. Right? Okay. Schools, uh, schools are like brain growth central. You know, it's okay. like the perfect place to do it. So I encourage teachers and school administrator, uh, school administrators to think about their kids as little brains, just okay. like we talked about. Uh, and this is going to shape the way that they do their behavioral programming, which again, we want to not be managing behavior, but teaching skills. So any, anything you're doing with a child should be to teach them. So punishment things, even punishment things, which are going to just stop behavior. It doesn't start anything. We, we're going to do for teaching moments. So even detentions, for example, if we're going to give attention, we need to do something else that's going to teach the right behavior because all punishment does is stop the, the bad behavior. So things like that. And it shapes their academic instruction as well. And then we can actually shape instruction to meet the kids' needs of with their using either their individual unique profile or kind of looking at a whole structured program school-wide or classroom-wide that's really going to help them, these kids benefit. And it takes us outside of that box that is school. And since I have experience in different schools, I get the benefit of seeing in New Jersey, each school is kind of its own entity, unlike other states. So our child study teams that help our special education students, they're all within each school instead of being kind of across three or four schools. So I've been in and out of all these different schools. So I get to see all different ways people are doing it and work with so many awesome teachers and school administrators. And I really find it fun to kind of help schools and teachers put our our combined experience together. You know, I know brings, they know teaching, they know schools, and we can put it together to make these small tweaks that don't necessarily uproot their whole system because that's when things don't work. It's within their system and within the way they're doing things. How can we make these small tweaks that are going to make a huge difference for kids learning? And many times it's just that. That's, that's beyond awesome. So now you're just not regional, you're national, right? So you can work with, with schools from all over the United States and even beyond, right? 
Yeah, so I do consultations across states. I would do more evaluations within the state of New Jersey. I have gone outside of state before, and I would be willing to do that. But every school's district runs so differently. Um, And a lot of times it's just about being able, yes, to come out and really get to know that school system. I'm really interested in actual change, not just what should happen, what we should write in these individualized education plans or IEPs, but you know, really making the change. And so in order to do that, you really have to be creative and outside of the box and all the things that I've always, you know, had trouble with in getting a career going, that's a straight path. You know, I'm always like all over the place, but that has been beneficial because now I have all this different kinds of experience that I can put together to make actual change and help people. You know, it's the thing you learn when you have kids that it's not, you want someone to, you want a teacher or school administrator or a provider to treat your kids the way you would want to treat them. It's, it's if, as if they had kids, not just what the, what the research says and what you're supposed to do, but what's actually going to work. Yeah. And you know what, your background and your experience and just us talking and the way your brain works. I mean, you'd be the perfect fit for these schools. I'm Cause you can see how all the inner workings are happening, right? And you can go into each person's brain and understand what they're dealing with. So I think that's important. You know, sometimes neuropsychologists, we get stuck kind of in our medical box and uh, we think we have an idea of schools. But unless you have like, you know, I've been a school administrator, I've been a principal for all intents and purposes. I've been a clinical director. I've been a school psychologist. You know, I've taught social skills groups for kids. So I have a sense of that. Although I would still say that teachers are, are amazing and incredible and have their own gifts that I definitely don't have. But being able to put all that stuff together is important. You can't ignore the administrative end and the structure that you're working in, the system you're working in when you're trying to make these interventions happen. That's how they fail. You have to work with people just like you do with families. You you can't have an intervention for a family that is so far outside of their box that they're not going to do. You have to work with the way you meet people where they are and, and help them come to where they might want to be. I love that. And so, okay, I just want to plug real quick. So people that are that are tuning in, you know, if you're working for a school and you think she'd be a, a great fit, you can contact Dr. Sarah at the Behavior Brain Bridge. You guys, I posted her website information on our Facebook up, up above in the comment section. So yep, it's okay. Brain Behavior Bridge. And then they can email me too at just uh, Dr. Allen, D-R-A-L-L-E-N at brainbehaviorbridge.com. I'm sorry about that. Okay, yeah, yeah. brainbehaviorbridge.com. I want to make sure that that's, just don't say it three times fast. Is the other thing my partner teases me about. He can't say it at all. You finally, like, this has been years and you finally able to say it. Yeah. I love it. I think it's fantastic. All right. Okay. So let's get into it. I want to talk about the right. amazing brains book. First and foremost, congratulations. Awesome job. You guys can purchase her book on Amazon. So it's Raising Brains with Dr. Sarah Allen, or you can buy direct through www.brainbehaviorbridge.com. Okay, I want to hear, how did this book come about? You know, it it was really the experience I spoke about during the pandemic. I've always had that funny habit of kind of watching myself psychologically and cognitively experience something as I'm going through it. And, you know, in this case, I think the readers just get the benefit of that personal and professional experience coming together. That's awesome. Okay. So what can you, what can readers expect from the book though? As I mentioned before, it's a guide. This book is a guide to creating your own parent manual. You know, I was frustrated by the same thing Sandy was, you know, make, they would hand, they handed me Juliana and I had worked so hard to have a kid and I had been helping families and I was like, you're letting me go home. Like, you don't want to tell, you don't want to give me a little like 
you know, and tell me how to do this first, you know, yes. and they just kind of hand them to you. And then all of a sudden you're home. Um, and there's some great guides, you know, like she said, for eating and for sleeping. And I use them. I needed, I wanted them. I wanted the rules, you know? So here, this is really to help, help you with that. Because if I were to give you a rule book, your yeah. kids would break them in the first minute, oh, probably that yeah. you had them. But if I can help you learn the tools to shift how you think about parenting and how you approach your little brains, which hopefully everybody is now thinking about their kids like little brains. Then you're going to have this increased confidence, which I see with people who join my program, which is, by the way, 85% of the battle is that confidence in, in knowing the tools that you have to use. And then you can handle anything that comes your way and you can problem solve whatever things you don't know about. And I think that's the best gift that I can give people. And I think that's really important. Well, and just you, what you touched point on is the confidence piece, right? I I think that's super important. Yes. Yes. Yay. And you see that even in a doctoral program, you know, you learn all the stuff in the books, but then you have to go and kind of apply it. So this is one piece of the puzzle. You know, when people join my uh, little brain master parenting program, we go through this pro we go through this and help them apply it so that, and what I noticed is, is about halfway through people will say, you know, I'm not yelling at my kids as much. I don't think I'm really doing anything differently, but I just feel like I know, you know, I kind of know what I could do. Yeah. And it's, that's the confidence that they start to feel because they understand what they're doing. Just like when you go to work, you know, you would feel confident once you build up your skills and you learn what you're doing. We just don't think about doing that as parenting. So I always say to my, especially my working moms, you know, hey, think about this the way you think about your work. You would never go to work without a plan and a confidence in what you're doing in these tools you know, you can, you can do that same thing at home and it's going to have this, it's going to reduce the amount of time that you need to spend on it. It'll run much more efficiently and effectively. And you get to have all the hats that you want to wear. I love that. I kind of think of confidence as your why, why am I doing this? Right. I love that. And having a plan is critical. Yeah. Yeah, Plan and tools for when that plan goes haywire, right? Because it all goes haywire. The plan has to be very flexible, right? Exactly. I love that. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit because I think this is amazing. And we talked (laughs) a bit about this when we were, we were chatting privately. Mindful meddling. I'm a meddler. Okay. For you guys out there that know me, that know my personality and everything. I love the Goldbergs. I'm People, my kids call me Bev. Do you ever watch the Goldbergs? <laughs> Very, I know what you're referring to, but okay. I don't watch it consistently. Yeah. That's okay. But um, I'm like Bev Goldberg. I'm a meddler. So, but I'm probably not a mindful meddler. So I want <laughs> you to talk a little bit about that. I think it's awesome. So, you know, you're mindful meddling if you're yes. guiding and not directing, and then you're doing it right. So, we all want to meddle in our kids' life. I'm a meddler by nature, too. You know, I want the people in my life to be happy and I want to help them. And I, I want to, you know, if I, if I can see the, the train coming, I want to stop it, you know. And, you know, what we as parents need to do is keep in mind the goals that our kids have, the goals that we have for our kids and the goals that they have, because we need to help them help themselves. So mindful meddling is this approach in which we meddle to guide our kids to the answers and to the skills they need, but not do things or fix things for them. And by having goals of, uh, in mind for your kids, you know where the line is between needing to meddle and needing to back off. You know, if your goal is advocacy for your kid and your kid says to you, like minded, you know, during the pandemic, well, I don't know what homework I have and she won't post it. My teacher isn't posting it anywhere. And I said, you know, his, I wanted him to advocate for himself. So instead of me calling him, you won't post it. Where are you going to post it? I said, how could you get in touch with your teacher? And because we did that, 
through the rest of the pandemic, he was able to help himself by finding those answers. If I'd fixed it, it would have crushed all of us because we would have all had to be on deck for whenever he needed and something. That just puts more pressure on you as a parent, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You want to get a team going. You want a family team going. And by a family team, that means all of us working together on our goals, myself included. You know, I have goals that my kids help me meet when I do these podcasts. I'll say, hey, this is really important to mommy. You know, can you give me this time? Or I know you want to do something. How can we fit that in around what I'm doing so that we both get the things that we need today? And that teaches them those life skills. You know, if you give everything and you give, give up everything for your kids, you know, they don't learn that kind of life skill. They can have this balance. And with my sister dying, you just, you learn, you, you don't know how much time you have. And you would, I would never want my kids to sacrifice 10 years, 15 years of their lives, you know, and not be able to do things they wanted to do in hopes to do that after. Cause you just don't know if, if, if everybody's working together and helping each other, it's such a good, it's a wonderful relationship. I get value from my children. That's crazy. You know, like I, my son, when he talks to me or my daughter too, you know, my daughter's the best problem solver in the world. We worked a lot on that younger. And so fine. Yeah. I can talk to her and she'll have a great idea. Or my son might say something to me that I'm like, you know what? I never thought about that. I actually really enjoy when you, when you talk to me about that. It's the kind of relationship that, you know, I don't think other generations have had with their kids that we get this opportunity to have. It doesn't mean we don't expect certain things of their behavior and and try to mold them to be good humans, but they learn so many things that when they get to, you know, the point of our ages, and if there is a pandemic, we might be able to prevent the kind of mental health issues and suicide rates and these things that we've seen recently. You know, the hope is to build these kids up to the point where they can, they can handle it. Self-sufficiency. I love it. And not feeling lost. And I don't know your age. I'm not throwing it out there, but I feel like the generation that I came from. Okay. A lot of us have dealt with that being lost, not being taught how to be self-sufficient, being reliant, being, being codependent. And I love what you just said. So I think that's super important. Super important. Okay. So This is one thing I talked about when I was promoting you about the frustrations that we as parents feel, right? When, you know, we're at a loss and we're threatening and we're, you know, we're trying to, I don't know, guide versus direct. I want you to talk a little bit about how you can help parents ease frustrations when they're frustrated with their kids. Meaning like, I know I'm a threatener. I'm going to take away your Xbox or... That's just, but I know I need help with this. So what can you get? What can you share? So uh, remember, most of the time, our frustration comes from forgetting to use the preventative tools we have. First of all, I want to give a good plug for this. So good routines. Routines are this awesome thing in the brain. It uses the center of our brain instead of using the front of our brain. And so anytime we get into a routine with our kids, they're going to perform better and they're going to function better. The whole household will sleep, good sleep habits, eating habits. All of those are extremely important for brain health in general. And then you have positive behavior plans, you know, which help us set ourselves up for success. And we can put those goals on and really reinforce things. Anything you reinforce is going to continue. Anything you punish is going to completely go away. So we have to use those together. But I also find it helpful to identify what I call your momfecta. Okay. Uh, this is like a trifecta, but it's it's a momfecta. And it is the three things that lead you to lose your shit, right? And mine are when I'm thinking about something at work, when we're running late, and then something changes, right? Oh, if yeah. you want to see oh, yeah. me lose my mind, 
those three things will happen. Especially, I told you I'm a thinker, so you might not be able to tell that something's going on, but it's in my brain, you know, it's in the back of my head. And so those three things are, and this is when I have a hard time being a good mom. Yeah. So we have to identify these things, right? And use them as learning experiences and teachable moments for our kids. Remember I said, don't, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to communicate about it. So you can say things like, I'll do it with my kids. You know, I know this makes no sense to you. I understand this, that it's early, but can I, my mom, in fact, a monster is coming out and I need you to just get in the car for me. And to the point now where my kids are usually in the car and I'm like, where are they? You know, I got, I want to get going. Oh, they're already in there because I've almost trained them to be in there. Cause then I can take that last minute, make sure I didn't forget anything without noise or anything. And then I can get in the car with them. So, you know, and our kids remember they have their own monsters, right? This creates, not only does this create a team dynamic, everybody helping everybody else, but it models how to handle that monster. And, you know, my kids are usually when they haven't eaten and they get in a fight with a friend or something else happens and then they're, you know, a nightmare. And I know this because I'm a brain detective and I can see what their little brains need. But I actually focus a lot on these strategies in in my course because I've noticed that these parents really need them. And remember, I also said confidence, right? That confidence helps to reduce that frustration too, because you can grab the the one tool or the other tool that you need that you know is going to work with your kids right away. You're not worried that everything is going to fall apart. You know, when we worry that we think we're not going to be able to handle it, our frustration level gets up a little bit too. You have a parent section, right? That Mm -hmm. talks about dealing with their own frustrations and feelings. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, I think those are the things that help, you know, that, that identifying where, you know, if we step back a, a long way, you know, what I really like to go into is, you know, how did you grow up? What are your parents? What was the parenting style that you grew up with? Because a lot of our biases as parents and a lot of the things that we impart on our kids and the frustrations we have have to do with these things we don't realize. What happened to us? What, not what happened necessarily to you, but how you grew up. You know, for example, I had a, um, I have a client who um, really wanted her kids to go to college in a very particular way, four-year college instead of a two-year college, while this girl was struggling a lot with anxiety. And we talked about the fact that actually this had to do with her. You know, she grew up in a certain way. She went to a two-year college and then transferred and felt like she didn't get anything, any of that early college experience. And so she realized she was really pushing for this four-year college when really her daughter might need something else, but it was because of an experience that she had had. And I have other families, you know, especially if your parents didn't talk a lot about emotions and didn't communicate, if they swept things under the rug, everything was always great and always perfect. That really makes managing and communicating about emotions very difficult. And oftentimes I see moms who come from households like that, not being able to understand what they're feeling in general. They, they're all the way back to the point of not even be able, being able to identify their emotion in order to be able to understand what's happening and why. And so they have to work on that before they can help their kids work on that. But that will lead to extra frustration because without identifying what's happening and then connecting that with thoughts and feelings and being able to communicate those things, that leads to frustration. When you can't say, I need you too, you know, that leads to frustration. I love that you just said that because, I mean, oftentimes we as parents were emulating what we learned, right? And now... I think what you brought to the forefront is really recognizing what our kids' needs are, right? And maybe it's not going to be the same as what we needed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm so glad you touched point on that because it just tells me that you all not only work with the kids, but you're, you're working kind of on personal development with the parent. 
Yeah, you know, I call it parent coaching, but I, I've struggled with calling it life coaching, executive coaching, because I have a lot of working moms, really a high level professional working moms, too, who are looking for this kind of efficient and effective strategy for managing their home like like they manage their work life. And, you know, it can be done and it doesn't take, you know, people are always worried about how much time it's going to take. But I always say, like, think about how much time you're spending right now walking on eggshells and, you know, you know, trying to make sure that nobody loses it and then yelling and then managing behavior. If you could pull all that out and just add this strategy, you would reduce that by so much that you'd have so much more mental and emotional energy and time to spend with, with your kids in a healthy way. And then to also spend on yourself because that's the model we want to do growth mindset for all of our, of our household, not just for the kids. A hundred thousand percent. (laughs) Such a good point. Okay. So we're kind of wrapping up here, but I want to ask you on a personal level, what inspires you with the work that you do? I think it's, um, it's really my kids. You know, like my kids more so than any book or anything else that I read, um, my, my kids really taught me more than anything else. And they inspire me every day because when you create, you know, I, I don't just talk about this, you know, this is the way that I am. This is the way that I eat, sleep and breathe. You know, I can't help it. I'm a talker clearly by nature. So the communication thing I have no problem with, um, (laughs) You know, to the point where my my kids are sometimes like, we're done talking about emotions now, mom, we're done. You know, like they're, you know, it's always that way. But but they really, you know, I, they push me to be better, you know, and I think also having gotten divorced and gotten into a new relationship with someone who's really very supportive and wants to see me thrive as much as I want to see him thrive. That has been uh, another push to really like, wait, I can, I can do the stuff that I, I thought I could do. And, and I'm going to just do it. I'm going to put it out there and I'm going to meet other moms and help them. And they're going to fuel me and I'm going to fuel them. And it's this back and forth, you know, connection with the world. And I learned after my sister died and after all these things happened, you know, the important thing is connectedness, you know, communication and connectedness. And so I like meeting people and talking to people again, they fuel me, I fuel them. And that's what fuels me to do this is meet is, is connecting with your world. I mean, even with brain science, we know that socializing is preventative for dementing conditions. Like if you do a social class, a dance class, those kinds of things, it's preventative. And, and I think it's, it, it just feels good to our brains. Our brains all about connectedness. And so am I, I don't know. I just want to throw this out here, but I just want to say personally, I've gotten to know you. I think you've just, you really have gone through so much stuff, right? And then you're like, okay, what is this human experience life about? What do I want? What do I need for my life? And looking at you, you're like the perfect persona of knowing your why. Well, I think I had to, like, I had to figure something out, you know, and I, you know, not that I don't work on myself. I think you work on yourself all the time and every day, but I think having a grounded in that, being grounded in that, you know, we're looking for this self-actualization in, in psychology called self-actualization. We want to be, you know, this best and most enlightened person we can be in understanding our thoughts and feelings and making mindful decisions, right? Um, being able to act in ways we want to, not in the ways our Amy G wants us to yes, Amy all the G. time. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and I think that's kind of been my goal is to help to share this stuff with families because, you know, I didn't have it before and, and, you know, I get, I get great strength from other people in so many ways, you know, and I want to be able to give that to others as well. And when you, uh, you know, I had a, um, I had a mentor whose father was a baker and he used to say, just bake good bread, you know, and that started to be my business model. And, 
you know, that's really at the core of everything. If you just putting good things out and you're baking good bread, you know, then you're fueling everybody and that, that becomes a reciprocal thing. Oh, I'm so grateful for you. I really am. I'm grateful for meeting you too. This was fabulous. Love it. Yes. Okay. So besides your amazing book, Raising Brains, which you can find on Amazon or www, I want to make sure I say it right, brainbehaviorbridge.com. You guys, fire book. It's amazing. Is there anything else that I know you do school assessments? Mm -hmm. What other types of services or programs that we can give to our folks, right? So they know all the amazing things that you do and are offering. Yeah. So I mentioned uh, the group coaching course that I have, which is like my baby right now. And after the book, I'm so happy to be able to do that. I'm so proud of all the women who've joined there and they've really been able to make such a fabulous supportive community and to help each other raise kids. So yes, there's coaching for me, of course, involved, but there's also this camaraderie that comes with being in a group program with other moms and they listen to each other and they provide support. So that group coaching is awesome. I do, like you said, a lot of school and parent trainings and consultations, which is always fun because I get to work with a lot of fabulous people raising brains as I want to do. And I love when districts and teachers or parents, parent groups, PTAs and such reach out to me for training. I've even done recently some virtual webinar series, which have been a really neat way of doing that too. So I try to individualize those. I always like the challenge of that. So people can reach out then. And then of course, I have my individual program and evaluation work that I do with students to help them figure out the way that they can think and learn and then make actual real change into their classroom. Oh, awesome. I mean, you're like doing it all. (laughs) No, I like to do a lot of different things. So it works out really well. (laughs) So I want folks to know what is the most direct way to get in touch with you so they can either set up an appointment or, you know, get in contact with you. Yeah. So any of your listeners can always reach out to me at Dr. Allen. It's D-R-A-L-L-E-N at brainbehaviorbridge.com. Or of course, you can go to my website, brainbehaviorbridge.com. Of course, you can follow me on Facebook and such. All the links are on my website and I'm sure you'll post them as well. My Facebook's brainbehaviorbridge.com. And then my Instagram is Dr. Dr. Sarah, S-A-R-A-H. L Allen, A-L-L-E-N. Again, it's all on my website. And of course, because I told you this before, but I just adore you and I, and I absolutely love this conversation. I also want to tell for anybody listening live or maybe catching the replay or the podcast, I want to offer them a $500 discount for that little brain master parenting class that you I mentioned. If they that. mentioned, only if they mentioned flip and shift. So. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm so excited. Okay, you guys, did you not hear that? She's offering $500 discount on the Little Brain Master parenting class. That's yep. mind-blowing, you guys. That's huge. So take advantage of that. <laughs> Well, and I know that your listeners are going to be good matches for that course too. You know, we don't let everyone into that program. We really want it to be successful for them. But, you know, knowing you uh, as we've gotten to know each other, anyone listening to you, I'm sure would be a great match. Oh my gosh. I'm just, I'm beyond mind blown. So thank you. you, Thank you so much. This was an awesome chat. I mean, just, I can't even tell you how many notes I took and like key things that I'm going to throw out in the universe for you. So Thank you so much, Dr. Sarah. You're Thank so Thank you. Awesome. And it was so, so, so nice to do this. I really appreciate it. Yes. Okay, you guys. So you can find Dr. Sarah. You can connect with her through Facebook. If you guys want to Google or search her, it's Brain Behavior Bridge. So you can connect with her through Facebook. She also has an Instagram handle. So it's Dr. Sarah with an H, 
L Allen. Okay. So look her up on Instagram. I'm friends with her, love her post. She gives a lot of great information out there. She puts a lot of great information out there. And for those folks that are on LinkedIn, okay, connect with Dr. Sarah. Sarah slash Levine, Levine, right? No, wait, hold on. Levine, right? Levine. I N slash Allen slash PhD. Okay. So look her up. I'll put all of her information on this post so you guys can link with her and then just email her. You guys, she's so easy to chat with, as you can see. And just her mind is like mind blowing for me. So (laughs) awesome. Well, thank you so much. I hope you guys have a fantastic day and tune in for our next podcast. All right. Take care. Wow, what a great episode and a special thank you to our expert today. I hope today's episode inspired you, empowered you, and gave you some hope today. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for our next episode. Cheers, my friend. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, review, or even share this podcast to someone who needs hope and inspiration. You can connect with me at www.flipinshift.com. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and even Clubhouse at Flip In Shift. Please join me next time for another expert chat or Survivor Talk. <music>